Welcome to What Kind of Asian Are You, a podcast featuring conversations about being Asian. We are going to highlight, amplify, and validate Asian voices through deep conversations with those in the diaspora, making a difference and being their best selves. I'm your host, Kyle. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of What Kind of Asian Are You podcast, a podcast featuring conversations about being Asian. I'm your host, Kyle. And um, thank you for listening, everyone. I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all the support you've been providing this podcast and um, providing me a space to um, talk to awesome individuals about their stories. And um, I'm going to keep doing and hopefully you'll be um, joining us for this ride. And if you want to support us, just keep listening just keep um, tuning in whenever there's an episode. Uh, I'm not sure when it be new episode coming out constantly, but we'll continue interviewing. We'll continue talking to more people. And uh, we just want you to be there along the way. And if you want to uh, follow us on social media, you could. You can follow us on Instagram at what kind of Asian pod. And yeah, we love interacting with uh, listeners. So um, if you want to connect and uh, chat, feel free. And yeah, just share us with your friends and family. Um, that's how this podcast will grow. And make sure to follow us on uh, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, all that stuff. And um, t- now to today's guest. And today's guest is a special one because it was um, recommended by our past guest of the show, Xinyi from Don't Be Strangers podcast. Um, this guest that I'm having on has appeared on her podcast and they had a great conversation, really enjoyed it. So um and then when she came up to me one day and she was like, oh, do you want to uh, talk to someone that I really uh, liked and had a great conversation with? I was like, sure, I will be interested because um, it's always nice to um, have people recommend you uh, others to uh, have a chat with and learn more about them. And um, we had a pre-talk before this and uh, it was great. That's why we were going to have a more in-depth kind of conversation on this individual in terms of his life, his stories, and what he's all about, and the important things that he's doing with you know, um, his talents, his skills, and all that stuff. So without further ado, I'm going to bring in our guest for today. Our guest today is Gabriel Lee. Hi, how are you doing today? Hey, Kyle. Doing very well. Thank you for inviting me onto your platform. Very excited. I know we've been talking about um, talking and having this conversation for months now, so it's really good that it's finally here today. Yeah, again, we got to thank, thank Xinyi for this kind of introduction because without her, um, we probably wouldn't be here now having this conversation. Um, before we really get into the nitty gritty of who you are, what about, can you just give us a kind of brief uh, overview of, like I said, who you are, what you're about, what and what kind of Asian you are? And um, if you don't mind, can you just uh, let us know in terms of, your kind of uh, family in terms of how they got to the West in terms of like the migration story, because it's always interesting to hear to, about that as well. Oh, absolutely. And uh, well, first, I knew this question was coming. I've listened to some of your past episodes. And so I wanted to be spontaneous as well. So I didn't over prepare, but I'm definitely the Korean American Christian kind of Asian. I am a proud AAPI that was soul born and raised in New York City 
And so as you know, Kyle, New York City has a, a very big AAPI community, big population. It's, our community is interwoven in the fabric of the city. And so very proud to be from this great city. And my upbringing, it's, I think, quite special. I think it's very similar to a lot of my friends and a lot of other Asian Americans and immigrants in general. So I was born in Seoul, Korea in 1984, January 1st. And a year and a half later, our parents decided to come to the United States because of my father's job, he worked for a big Korean company at the time. Um, it was called Daewoo, D-A-E-W-O-O. I'm not sure if anybody <laughs> remembers that company. It, it went insolvent many years ago during the Asian financial crisis of 97, 98, 99. Um, well, it was supposed to be a three-year stint. My dad promised my mom, hey, let's go to America just for three years. The company's gonna send us on company dime. We'll get to experience America, expose our kids to the West, and then we'll come right back. And so that three years just turned into 42. And so we've been in the United States since 1985. And so, and we kind of, you know, went back and forth from Korea to New York several times during our, our time in America. So um, yeah, that, that was our journey. I know there's so much more, but I just want to keep the focus on, you know, my generally my upbringing. And so what, what do I do today? Well, I, I do several things. First, I'm the public affairs manager for Hugmatch, which is an early tech startup based here in New York City. Our team is all over the globe at the moment. We have a vibrant team here in New York City. We have one member in Boston and we got several in Seoul, Korea at the moment. So kind of spread out. And what makes us very unique is that we're all an AAPI team at the moment. So we're composed of designers, uh, UX designers, developers, uh, public affairs people. We got some child education specialists. We got researchers on board. And so we all have this mission uh, to make Hugmatch, uh, which is an inclusive design platform, more specifically. So we create storybook apps for kids, and we also create these interact interactive toys, these dolls. And so it's supposed to help uh, visually impaired children, um, but now we're starting to foray into possibly hearing impaired kids as well. And so, like I, like I stated before, just to make this as inclusive as possible. That's a great introduction, and I definitely want to learn more about Hugmatch and all that you guys are doing because uh, it's really great stuff. Just hearing the the, the really brief details about about it right now. But um, you mentioned a few things about your upbringings that I'm really uh, curious to and want to just dive in more. And I'm sure uh, our listeners will be interested in. Um, you mentioned that your family, especially your dad, oh, promised your mom was like, oh, it's only gonna be three years, three years, and we'll go back. How did it end up being, like you said, 40-something years now? Because like you mentioned, no, your dad just wanted to just experience the West on uh, company dime and such. And I'm sure that, uh, say, after that three years up, he could always just go back to Korea and 
still, you know, career and stuff will be fine and stuff since he is working for such a huge company at that time. So it's right. not something where it's like, oh, we're stuck here or anything like that. So do you have an idea, especially why it happened where you guys just ended up staying? Oh, oh definitely. And um, I wanted to um, take back the 42 years. I think I did my math wrong. 42 years is my parents' marriage. Um, that's their anniversary. 37 years, so 1985, 37. So, yeah, I, I don't think I was the best Asian when it came to math. But anyhow, to answer your question, so my father, you know, he did promise that three years. What happened was, you know, according to legend, <laughs> so my dad, he came to America on, you know, Teo's dime. And then he just saw that, you know, I guess during the 1980s in New York, there were just so many opportunities for all immigrants, especially Korean immigrants. So he opened, so he decided to open his own business. So the, the company paid for a trip, a container to ship all our stuff from Korea to New York. And, you know, at the end of those three years, he just resigned. So he was able to just, you know, stay during the meantime, he applied for a green card. So we, we were able to get um, permanent residence. And he decided to strike out on his own. Um, just a quintessential um, entrepreneurial spirit of a lot of AAPI immigrants, right? And so he ended up opening a wholesale toy shop on Broadway. Back in the 1980s, uh, that was sort of dominated by um, Korean immigrants at the time. So he started off like that, and you know the business did pretty well, um, from what I've heard when I was when I was a child. And yeah, and then from there he expanded to other things. Uh, he had a passion for food, my dad, and so does my my mom too. Our, our family is big eaters, so. Um, they expanded into like the restaurant business, retail bakery business, and then sort of that's how they sort of kept their kept their keep and their living as they settled here in the United States. That's very interesting, and it's nice to hear that side of a story because so often we often have like this kind of uh, notion that oh, that immigrant life during the eighties, the seventies, and all that stuff for people in the West has been really tough and that oh they often be like oh we want to go back or whatever it may be but it's nice to hear stories like your your families were like oh they they found their lane they found their path and they stuck with it and they lived the so so to speak american dream and um at this point americans and korean americans and all that stuff so it's nice to hear and it, it must be kind of interesting for you now that um you lived your pretty much your whole life in, in at least uh, upbringing in Korea, uh, in sorry, in America, and you right. did spend a few uh years uh in other places. Uh, at least that's what I've heard from you no know, yourself mentioning and also in the uh podcast episode with Xinyi. So I just want to uh get more into it because it's really fascinating of like your trajectory from when you just started out being a kid and. New York growing up to now you're the public affairs uh, person for Hugmas. So I just want to know about that journey. Like 
how did you get to here at this point? Because um, you did a lot of really cool things. Do you want? Do you want to just share with the audience what you have done? I don't think it's cool, but thank you. I I just think um, you know, to be quite honest, I I don't know how I got to certain parts in my life. I think a part of me likes to think it was. What's that word? Destiny. Like it was predestined. Uh, there was a reason why I experienced some of the things that I did. I know before when we talked about my family's journey here in the United States, I know it was a very broad sort of overview of what happened and and what they did and how we were able to stay. But there were definitely moments of despair and hardship. Lot of difficulties, a lot of late nights, sleepless nights. And, you know, that's all part of the script that I sort of learned as a child. Um, there was this one financial book that I read um, a couple of years back, and I forgot the title, but the main takeaway was this is that the way you grow up, you, you receive like this financial script from your parents or whoever raised you. So for example, if there was a this constant feeling in the household when you're growing up that things were scarce, um, things were hard, you know, certain things were hard to come by, that you sort of live that financial script as you grow older. So you have that sort of, how can I say, a, a more limited mindset. There's more insecurity and so I think uh, growing up as immigrants in one of the most competitive cities on earth, that really affects me. That, that really affects everyone. And so I think it definitely affected me. But a, a big part of me also wanted to do cool things. I wanted to do things that other people don't do. I remember... Growing up, my father was pretty strict. My parents were very strict. And uh, that was very typical of their generation. And I'm sure you heard that uh, Korean men have to serve in the South Korean military. And uh, I'm sure you know that one of the BTS members just entered the army, I think it was yesterday, in in South Korea. So... um, so men of my, my father's generation, uh, they know nothing but hardship. The Korean War, growing up very poor. And so when they come to a place like the United States, they see abundance and they just, they go for it. They grab it. You know, they're just go-getters at that point because they didn't grow up with that. But unfortunately, uh, I, I didn't, have to and and for a lot of the second and third generation uh, asian americans now they didn't go through that and so they know abundance and so i guess now i i wanted to find some significance and meaning in my life and i think it's kind of sad that our first generation our, our parents our grandparents they didn't have that kind of luxury right their mode was survival as the children, as, as the inheritors of their legacy, I started to think, oh, I, I want more meaning. Money isn't everything, or 
Material possessions isn't everything. It's still important, but it's not the purpose of why I'm living. And so I hope, I think that's a very long-winded answer to your question, but in terms of moving around and experiencing different things and different career paths, I think it was because all my life I've been told what I should be doing. And it wasn't until I found my own voice, I thought, oh, this is, this is for me. Oh, I tried this path. You know, maybe it's not for me. I, I worked at the UN, for example. I was always very interested in diplomacy, international affairs. I worked there for about three and a half years at the New York headquarters. I did like it. It was very interesting. I met people from around the world. Um, but I think it was only interesting up to that point. And then I decided to start something totally new, um, to, to start a small business with a few partners and like my father out in Colorado or teaching English in South Korea for about six, seven years. And also being uh, working at a publishing house as a writer and editor. So I did quite a lot of stuff in terms of work. Actually finding a vocation, which is more than a job, that took decades. So um, here I am now as a, a seminarian, full-time seminarian, church pastor, a military chaplain, and then the public affairs manager at Hogmatch. So got quite different things that I'm doing at the moment. Wow, that's a lot of hats you were wearing and amazing at how you kind of how it all led up to where you are now based on your experience, based on the fact that you were trying to find meaning, trying to like um, get past like, oh, I have I had lived a life of abundance that um, I was given the luxury of by, you know, your parents, those before you that, you know, had to go through the hardships and here you are now finding what you really want to do and doing it uh, with uh, passion, with meaning and such. And you mentioned like it took you so long to find your voice. Talking about your voice, how would you describe what is your voice? What's, what is it, it? What does that mean to you? Oh, that voice. Well, I guess your listeners and you can hear my physical voice. You can hear it right now, but the voice that, that we all know is that inner voice that's deep within. You know, sometimes you don't have to put words. Sometimes we just groan, like, ah, or we grunt. That's your inner voice too. You're expressing your innermost being and, and your spirit, your soul. I would describe that as your true voice. I think a lot of us, and, I, and I, this everybody does, it's, I think, the human condition. Sometimes we ignore that inner voice to our, our detriment, and other times we listen it for our benefit. And so I guess some people call it conscious, some people call it their spirit. We all know that we have it, and every day we can choose to listen to it or we can choose not to listen to it. That's very interesting, and it's it's very enlightening to hear that you know uh, the journey you took to find that voice, to find meaning in your life, to find what you really want to do vocation wise. That you know serves purpose, and 
it seems like all this stuff that you're doing currently in terms of um, you know, your day-to-day kind of thing, you're from um, being a pastor to um, your military to being public affairs at Hangmat, they all have like different facets of what you have done previously in terms of where mm-hmm. uh, at the beginning of you know exploring and such. So I want to just uh, talk a little bit about like your UN experience because I don't think it's every day where you can find someone to be like, oh, I work for the UN and especially working at uh, New York, which is one of the main, is it the main office or at least, yeah, yeah the main one. So can you just talk about uh, that experience and what you did there specifically and what you kind of felt that you gained most out of in terms of your experience at the UN? Oh, absolutely. And not that I'm trying to promote it, but it was a fantastic place to work at. Kyle, if you love buildings, if you like structures and design and architecture, it's a fantastic work environment. Uh, I used to work at what they called in the past the Department of Public Information. I think it's now called the Department of Global Communications. So they did a a bit of a, a change and restructuring At the time, I worked as a public information assistant. And so we would have these public information officers who are the senior level officials who interact day to day with the media. And as their public information assistants, we are sort of, I guess if I can give you an analogy, we would sort of be like the, I guess like the paralegals and the PIOs would be kind of like the lawyers. And so we do more of a a support role, but then again, our, our roles are very important. We're sort of like the backbone of the UN's voice and how it communicates to a global audience. So I did quite a, quite a bit. Uh, my portfolio sort of went into a lot of directions. I did a little collaborative work with the UN TV and UN radio. I used to write press releases for the PIOs. I used to do a lot of editing, a lot of writing. Sometimes I would give guided tours to VIPs. I've met a lot of celebrities, interesting people walk through the UN doors. I, I've i seen, for example, uh, former President Barack Obama up close. Like, literally, I could, just, I could have touched him, but of course, he's surrounded by Secret Service. That would have gotten me on the floor. I saw, I've seen Al Gore. I've seen George Clooney at the United Nations. Um, just people from, people that you would not expect I've actually seen them. Um, And so it was a very interesting place. It was very mission-oriented. And so if you like, for example, helping people, if you really do that, it's, of course, everybody needs to make a decent wage, right? If you can't make a decent wage, it's hard to sort of help others because you're constantly trying to, you know, keep yourself stable. But I know the United Nations, they pay very well as great benefits. And it's very few places on earth where you can say, I have colleagues from 193 countries from around the world. So you will hear different languages. It is literally, um, it's, it's, how can I, I, the, the Tower of Babel, just languages from all around the world. It's, it's great. It's like Duolingo in real time. It's, you know, wherever you're walking, you'll see diplomats from around the world. Um, so every year 
around September, the third week of September, it's General Assembly Week. It's where presidents, heads of state, heads of government from around the world all come to New York City. And when I was there, you know, of course, the U.S. presidents were there, but literally people you see on the news, they were all in that one building, in the General Assembly building. And so it's, it's truly a majestic place. Uh, do I miss it? Oh, of course. I, of course. And I do have colleagues who I befriended that are still there. And I worked there about, about 10, 13 years ago, but they're still there and, and they made it a career and I'm happy for them. But I've moved on. And I, I've also seen the world myself. And so if you're interested in working at an organization that is mission-driven, that helps people, and you know you want great benefits as well while you are doing important work, and the UN is for you. Wow, it seems like you had a really good time there. And you said you worked there for about three years or so. So what kind of drove you to like, oh, look for the next thing after the UN? Because hearing you talk about it, like in hindsight, it seems like, Oh, you really enjoyed it. You you don't you didn't mind it at all. So, what was something that made it where you know you had to move on to the next day, find something different to do, and um, kind of move towards it? Well, I there was a point where when I was in college, I thought oh, I I want to work at the UN. Like everybody who studies international affairs, that's their dream, or represent their country as a, as a diplomat or like an ambassador. And I finally did it. And then I thought, now what? What's next? And so as somebody in my, you know, mid-20s at the time, I thought there has to be more to this life than just, you know, marking off a, something on your to-do list or your, your dream list or your wish list, your bucket list. And so... I wanted to see the world. You know, living in New York, you know, we have the the good fortune of people from around the world coming to New York. But I wanted to see what was out there. And so, you know, I resigned. I resigned and thinking that oh, I'll just come back one day. You know, I have a file there. I did very well. I still have contacts. And so, and then I just picked up and I moved back to South Korea, I think back in early 2011. The reason why I went back to Asia was because it's just so dynamic, Asia. I mean, just so different from like the EU or the African Union or Latin America. It is just... It is just ginormous, Asia. 56, 57 countries that make up the APEC region. And it's just so diverse, right? West Asia, you have Iran, Saudi Arabia, that's all part of considered the Western Asian part, as well as Turkey. Then you have Central Asia, and then you have East Asia, Southeast Asia, Oceania. And it's, it's just a remarkable region. And I just wanted to experience what was out there. And it did not disappoint. So I traveled quite a bit while I was going to graduate school. I guess the luxury of being a student is you had some time, but not enough resources to back it up. 
but I, I still managed to, you know, as I was teaching English to earn some income to sort of fund these travels. And so I just love going to different countries. I love meeting people who are different than I am. I love learning about other people's cultures. That's what sort of drove me to leave the UN. It's one thing to say that you work for a very international organization, but it's another to actually experience it outside of that context. And so that's what sort of drove me out of the safety of a decent, you know, stable job. That's great. And I, I relate to in terms of like, it's great to have that experience of going to Asia because it's so dynamic and so much of like difference and such, but you still feel like uh, you're part of it as, as you're going through it. And um, like yourself, I did spend a few years teaching English in Asia as well um, mm -hmm. for a few years in specifically Taiwan and Singapore. So um, I could definitely relate on like, Oh, the things that you can experience while doing that. And I just want to know from your kind of perspective, what was your biggest takeaway while you're having that experience like what was like something that you really got out of it by the end oh you finished it and well, wow i learned that from there and if it wasn't for that i don't think i'll probably either uh end up learning it or it will take a long time for you to like to learn that lesson oh wow it's uh it's a very deep question oh but first that's uh, really cool that you taught english in taiwan and, and singapore Actually, Singapore is one of my favorite countries. It's just nice, isn't it? <laughs> everything runs. Uh, it's just like clockwork. It's just everything is so precise and pristine over there. But yeah, but to answer your question, uh, and if I hear you correctly, I think you're asking, so I, I taught English in Asia. Are you asking, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're asking what led me to now move on after that to the next part? Because I sort of learned the, the lessons in that part. That and also like what is something that you feel like you have learned from that experience that you feel like if you haven't gone through that experience in Asia, you want to have learned it mm -hmm. by now or it will take you longer to uh, learn this lesson per se. Oh, that's, oh yes. Okay. Thank you for that clarification. Like I could share what I have Please, in mind. Yeah. For myself, I feel like the biggest thing that... Um, I learned from just my experience living in Asia and working there and like teaching English and all that stuff was that um, regardless of like how many years you do that or how many years you're used, I don't want to say um, moved away from where you're from originally, but like in a way of like you uh, are in a different place where you're not the like local there, regardless of how much you try to do that. By the end of the day, if you're doing it for the sake of like, not have to deal with certain issues of your life or say you use it as a kind of a reason to like kind of run away from issues and stuff. Um, it's not something that, you know, will work. Your issue will always just follow you regardless of if you're in Asia or in the West. Like if you always had a problem with uh, like a, a will always follow with follow you no matter where you go. It's not the place that you no know, will dictate that. You no, know, you get to, uh, have that problem solved is how you yourself go upon in terms of solving it if you're up, if you're ready for it like for at least that's how I see it does that make sense 
That makes perfect sense. And, and thank you for sharing. Uh, I think, you know, rather than hearing my voice, I definitely, I think your audience wants to hear more of you. So please share these stories. Well, just to add on to what you've been like saying and, and building right now, I've definitely met a lot of Westerners um, from a lot of these English-speaking, I guess, Anglophile countries, we call it, right? Canadian, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and they all, United States, they all come to teach English. And, you know, there's a very mixed bunch, right? Caucasian, white, African-American, Black, Latino, Asian-Americans too. And I definitely hear stories in Korea where a lot of the teachers there, they sort of ran away from their problems at home or they're there and they're li living these Peter Pan fantasies. Like they're just not taking their life seriously. And, and that's nothing, not trying to sort of cut down the teaching English industry in Asia as not a serious career, but sort of the attitudes that I've seen sort of kind of builds that perception that English teachers are not, you know, they're just in between. They're always in that sort of purgatory of a, a serious career and their past, their future and their past. They're just sort of in this weird um, existence in the middle. The, the biggest thing that I took away from that experience, and it was great. I, I love a lot of the students. I genuinely cared about their growth and their development and, and learning English and being exposed to Western culture. And I'm sure you experienced that too, where you taught as well. The biggest takeaway is that there's a few positives and negatives. I think the biggest one was, you know, just because I'm not, you know, the typical English teaching, I don't have that look, that truly Westerner look that doesn't take away from my skills as a teacher. I'm just as competent as somebody who looks traditionally American. That's the biggest takeaway. The second takeaway, first takeaway, the second takeaway was there are more people that look like you and I in this world than Caucasians or, or, or Blacks or Latinos. And I don't say that as sort of in a way where oh we're superior because we're a greater number it's just it's just refreshing you know you're back in asia everybody at least in korea every, i'm sure in taiwan and singapore we all kind of we all have black hair and we enjoy the similar foods while i was you know as kids we were probably lunchbox shamed by a lot of american classmates in asia it's 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 normal right the the sort of the textures and the smells are familiar. And so that was very comforting, just feeling truly comfortable in my skin. But I, I think the other takeaway, and I think the negative one was uh, the lesson that I, I took away was, um, yeah, um, there will always be some sort of discrimination. I've had Korean employers who are looking for instructors specifically say no Korean Americans. And, and that really hurt. And 
but you know, I, I couldn't let that mar my experience in the country of my birth. Uh, overall, it was a great experience and I always enjoy visiting family whenever I get a chance. So yeah, Kyle, I, I believe you can relate on some levels, but those are my key takeaways from that experience. For sure. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing that with us and provide insight on what you can expect if you are from the diaspora and you're going back to wherever your um, you know family uh, is from, and um, it's good to know. It's better to know this than have kind of like a fairy tale kind of uh, expectation of what it will be like when you go back. Because I think a lot of people from the diaspora will be very culture shocked in the sense of, oh, I thought it was supposed to be A, but it, it's more like B or C. Because I think, at least I hear a lot of people online, at least in terms of sharing their experience of going back to the motherland, to the Asia and stuff as a diaspora. And the feedback they have received is not what they have expected. Like the expectation and reality is not up to what they have ex- uh, hoped. And um, by you sharing what you have shared, I think it will provide more insight and more uh, align more closely to what they can expect and all that we've been talking about in terms of your growth your journey i think everything that you have done really makes sense now in terms of your kind of um work doing uh with hug match can i just have you now transition to talk more about hug match this great company and like the origin story of Hug Match, because I think you kind of already kind of talked about Hug Match in terms of what it is, but can you just go for, dive further into it and like just let the audience know what Hug Match is and your involvement and the team behind it and this and what is so special about it because it's really special. Thank you, Kyle. I appreciate that. So Hug Match started, it actually started from the founder, her, this idea of an inclusive design platform came from her, actually her thesis that she wrote, you know, before she graduated from the Parsons School of Design here in New York. And so it, it was birthed from there. And she has this ability to gather like-minded souls and very talented people as well to create this group and what's very unique is that yes we are an all aapi team and you know we would love to be more diverse as well as we grow so um, as hugmatch does grow we we hope to attract talent no matter where a person is from definitely and so we have UX designers, developers, um, child education specialists, researchers. And so they all came for this passion to help children, help children with disabilities. And so I wanted to share like a project that we're working on. And so there is an app that's being developed right now that will launch in 2023. It's called the Hugmatch Earth app. And it's a storybook app. So 
we did a lot of prototype testing this past October in Philadelphia. There was a, a maker fair at the Independence Seaport Museum on October 15th. And, you know, the founder and I, we drove to Philly. We got all our cables, our booth, and we brought our iPads with the app prototypes on it. And so we were able to meet a lot of children and their parents and speak with them and sort of get their feedback on the characters and our storytelling. We also have sound engineers on our team as well and music composers. And so they create these theme songs for the app where kids could sing along. It's truly interactive. So in order to sort of progress from one level to the next, the kids, they have to, for example, they have to shake the iPad, right? And then just use a lot of their physical motions to allow, to push the characters forward in that story. And so um, very interactive. It sort of tests all our faculties, the mind. Uh, even as an adult, I enjoy playing the app at times because uh, it do definitely does bring out the inner child in, in me. I can't say about, about every adult, but for me, I, I enjoy um, sort of dabbing into the app and seeing it grow. And so the app's purpose is to teach children about climate change and, and do so in a fun way. And so there's games on it. Um, there's an RPG portion of it where the characters are going through hug match land, this sort of imaginative imaginary world where the users, the children, uh, become these characters and sort of navigate through one level to the next. And so um, that's who we are. Uh, we're just a very talented bunch, uh, humble as well. We have a people of great character and we just want to get our story out there. And so we're working on that I, I, as the PA manager. That's, that's part of my, that's part of my role. And so hopefully we'll get a chance to, um, get on different platforms like your like yourself what kind of asian are you and, uh, and hopefully get a, get a chance to make a pitch to investors one day and so we're working on that front as well that's awesome that's a lot of stuff that you just covered and very interesting and one of the things that really spoke to me when i heard about the your team what you guys are doing your kind of tech startup all these things that you're doing is specifically no, targeting specifically children and for the development, especially children with, um, uh, at first, uh, I know it's for uh, those that are visually impaired, but now you're kind of also moving towards those that are hard of hearing and such. So mm -hmm. can you just talk about how did it get started from, oh, making interactive toys for uh, mm -hmm. children, specifically those that are uh, disabled? Why, what what came upon to be like, we want to focus on that because if you want to be like a tech startup that want to make interactive toys, you could just be like, oh, it's just children, toys, and we'll go from there. But why is it specifically so niche in terms of um, that segment? And uh, hopefully you're going to educate us and say it's actually not that niche because of what you know and all the stats that you have. Right. Um, so I appreciate that question. And it's very important to... Uh, Chloe Ku, the founder. So Chloe has an uncle that had a visual impairment. 
a disability. And so having, having seen that firsthand, you know, that's, you know, I remember I mentioned that Hagmatch sort of started from her thesis, but it's an actuality. It actually started from experiences as a child growing up in South Korea with an uncle with disabilities. She also had a chance to, as she was doing this research on this project, visit schools. She visited, I believe, the Helen Keller School for the Deaf Hearing and Hard of Hearing. And she was able to meet children and, and sort of interact with them, but also to observe in their natural settings. What she observed was that a lot of those children who were visually impaired or hard of hearing, they obviously they can't interact with the other kids that well. And so a lot of times that they're left out. So they're not included. And a lot of those children just tend to interact with their teachers only. But as, as you and I know, and Kyle, I know you have, a, you have kids as well, can't always interact with the adult teacher in the room. They have to interact with their peers. That's how they will grow in their social skills as well. And so those are the main thrusts of sort of wanting to include visually impaired children and, and having a heart to help them. I think we all know what it's like to feel excluded at some point for something, for a part of who we are. And so I think for Chloe, it was definitely for this, I wouldn't say niche. Mm, I, I guess our purpose is just to make sure that the words disability or visually impaired, it's just another way of saying unique and special. These kids may not see as well as, or hear as well as we can, but their other senses are probably much more heightened and they have their own superpowers. For sure. And, and I love how you talk about it, the uniqueness and special uh, superpowers with you know, what they have in terms of their abilities and whatnot. And going to more in depth of like what you guys are doing in terms of research, in terms of design and all that, in terms of this company, this startup. So it's this startup has been going on for a, a bit now. I was just wondering in terms of all the research I've done, or can you just let us know like what is it that makes it unique in terms of designing you no know, these kind of toys, these these experiences for for those children compared to just you no know, regular, you know, toys for children as a whole? Is there anything that is specifically where, oh, we did research, we noticed that this is really specific that we need to address or how 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 would the design process go upon terminal making these interactive toys for those that you're trying to uh, include. Oh, absolutely. And so uh, before the, the storybook app was being developed, we actually had these dolls and they would have like these sensors inside uh, magnetic sensors. And so, you know, if you're being, if you're visually impaired, it's, it's hard to sort of spot uh, a matching toy. So, the the name itself hug match comes and it, it just comes from the words connection right? we wanted to match toys that sort of do this hug and they connect and so the originally those toys 
if they were near its sort of like partner, its sort of the the other, as you they come together closer, they would just actually hug and just come together. And so that you know that those are the toys that were, you know, they were made to be together and have that connection. And so definitely in that stage, it was very, I guess you would say niche, definitely wanted to hammer home that this is for visually impaired children. But the storybook app now that's being developed, it's it's not just for visually impaired or hard of hearing children. It's actually for all children, but specifically kids um, their age between two to seven. And, you know, in terms of, I know the Genesis started to helping visually impaired kids, but uh, the founder and, and some of the other members just started to realize that, you know, disabilities and other things when it involves the senses, it, it goes much more beyond that. There's also a cognitive aspect. There's also a developmental aspect. And so I guess they're looking for a very holistic way. And just what better way to do that by creating an app that's fun, that's interactive, that's bright and colorful, and has these little cute characters that sort of are sort of the avatars of who we want to be in a way. So we kind of project ourselves onto our heroes. And so that's the direction that they chose. I know kids, they learn best when they play. And that's our philosophy as well. That's great, and I'm very happy that you guys are doing what you're doing, and you know, working very hard to like get your message out, and you no, know, you know, have this voice of saying, "Oh, we want to have children to be able to play and learn and develop." I think that's very important, and it's really nice that not only are you guys you no know, no doing the research to make sure that oh everything you know, makes sense in terms of development of children in terms of you no. Know, uh, they're growing up and such, but making everything fun. I think that's m- important, just as important as all the back in terms of you no know, development and such. Because fun makes everything you know so much easier and f- better for the children. Like if they're having fun, they wouldn't even recognize that they are learning, even though sometimes learning could be kind of daunting at first in terms of if it's a big concept. But it seems like you guys are trying to put the two together in terms of oh it's fun but you can also learn without really noticing and i think that's really special and just curious to know what is like the the short-term and long-term goal right now that's you guys have set for 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 the startup and because you mentioned it in our pre-talks that there's a certain goal that you want and i would love for you to like just speak it out loud manifest it and all that stuff as well well, thank you. I appreciate that question. In terms of the short-term goals, uh, we're very close to launching it on the the Hug Match Earth app on the the Apple App Store and and the Google Play Store. Very close, but we've, you know, as you know, it's hard to get and find a, a good developer to sort of see a project through, and so um, we we definitely need developers people who can join the team and sort of help out and now sort of work collaboratively with the team that's sometimes a bit long distance and to work with so many different personalities and also 
take direction, the artistic direction from the founder. And so that's sort of our challenge at the moment. But we're very confident we can get it finished in 2023. Everybody is working very hard. So the design process is pretty much finished. It's, it's now up to our developer teams to sort of see the project through. And then I guess one last run through in terms of prototype testing, and then we should see it. So I guess that's pretty much our biggest short-term goal. Um, I would say like a, a medium range goal would be to be able to speak, be able to be, be able to speak at a lot of different forums in person, virtually. Remember during the pandemic, uh, we would go to all these make affairs virtually uh, utilizing metaverse software. And so I would be able to interact with the general public in that sense. But now that sort of the pandemic is winding down, it'd be nice to uh, go to conferences and sort of speak on panels, especially on the education panels, because we believe this is a very big on children's education. So that's so, and so the long-term goal, of course, we wanted to make a, build a viable business out of this. That is our long-term goal. And if it's good enough to allow us to make an honest living in, in terms of resigning from our current jobs to do this full time, oh, that'd be, that'd be great. Just one thing in terms of the long-term goals is that I know the founder, she wants to build like a hug match curriculum and a hug match nursery. So putting the, not just, you know, making it interactive on the app, but making it an interactive environment in, in totality. So I'm sure, Kyle, you've been to like a, a digital museum before. Um, and so you know what that's like. It's uh, like you touch the walls, they, they move, they, they change colors. And so doing something like that with Hugmatch in terms of building like a nursery or, or some sort of like a after school where the kids are allowed to play, but they also learn at the same time. And so... If I can add just one more. Um, so, yeah, a lot of things are going into the metaverse. So possibly, you know, storybooks apps are cool, but also getting into VR someday. I think that would be uh, just fantastic. That would be like just the sort of the icing on the cake. That's amazing i love the, the 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 goals the mission and what you're all you guys are all about and uh the great stuff you're trying to push out in terms of you know your storybook app your your toys your you know your vision of how to you know help in terms of childhood education providing the the space and letting you know your work help everyone feel included Mm -hmm. I think that's what's very, very important for children, especially during their developmental uh, phases from age two to seven, like you mentioned. And I'm looking forward to all the stuff that you guys are trying to uh, create and you know, do. And and hopefully you're able to met, you're manifesting right now. Hopefully that we could get that energy out and, you know, uh, 
get 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 it moving at least not saying oh oh right away but like, you know it's all a process it's a journey like how your kind of trajectory from um from the very beginning starting from what you study to go to the u.n to the military and now being in like your capacity as a uh, public affairs uh for hug match i could only see everything going uh upwards and you know to a positive space and i i look forward to you know, uh, staying in touch with you and you know, seeing that kind of progress for a hug match. I, I think that's very exciting to see. Oh, Kyle, thank you so much. And um, I should have said this earlier, and I was definitely thinking about it as our our day was coming to, you know, sort of podcast together. I saw like your lineup of your former guests, and, and there are some heavy hitters in the AAPI community. So you know, congratulations, you have a fantastic platform. And I am listening to episodes on Spotify. And so um, it's great. I think you have a really cool brand as well, in terms of allowing people in the AAPI community to have that time to introspect, have that point of introspection and to reflect, yeah, what kind of Asian Asians are we? Who are we? We're asking a lot of important questions on this on this platform, and I'm just so humbled to be invited as a guest. So uh, thank you again. This was this was awesome. No, thank you, and really appreciate your kind words, and um, thank you for your support. And you mentioned a lot of you just mentioned about like AAPI, and this is like something that I hold really dear about in terms of you know telling their stories and allowing them to you know have a platform to uh share whatever they want and just brought up like a a question that i want to ask you um even before we started is you mentioned like oh your whole team is uh aapi which is great there's a lot of positives to that i was wondering in terms of like your experience now with it having a team like that what has been the biggest kind of like you know positive or like things that you notice working in an AAPI team because you already have experience in many other fields where it might not be all AAPI or like you might be the only AAPI person there like especially your time in yeah it could be very diverse but it doesn't mean like you have a lot of people that are similar to you in cultural makeup oh yeah that's that's a great question thank you for that well being an all AAPI team specifically Korean, I guess one thing, a very big positive is we all get each other. We all understand where we're coming from. There's always these cultural nuances that we get, cues, right? Like knowing how to read the room. Uh, Korean, we call it nunchi. So we're able to sort of figure out, like we'll have like a sixth sense in terms of like social interaction. And so, and also, I think Koreans are known to be a little slightly impatient. I don't, I don't mean to bash my community, but they, they try to be quick with a lot of things. And so whenever we need something, uh, the team has been fantastic in their response, especially in their timing. That's been positive. I guess just, I guess we don't have to, because I, I did hear in, in, for example, and I know this is a slightly different. It's, nothing involved with working professionals, but 
I found out that AAPI kids, students, are the most bullied group in the United States. And that, that broke my heart. But I know that sometimes we as adults, we don't leave that kid that extends right to the workplace. There is workplace bullying. And there is ostracization and sort of exclusivity that happens at the workplace too. Um, but just being part of an AAPI team, we don't have to deal with that. It's just one less thing to worry about and, and keep focused on our mission. So I guess those are some of the positives. That's awesome. And uh, I, I, I like that you the your, your startup as a whole is kind of fostering that kind of um, AAPI team. Of course, you can always expand to having other people join the team that's okay. not AAPI. That's fine for sure. But it's nice to have where it's like majority of those that are in the team are of the same cultural makeup, background and such because it feels very nice after all that has happened in terms of your own life, in terms of how for a lot of AAPI people in America, it's like where I'm the only AAPI at school. I'm on the only AAPI in my workplace for a very long time. And for your startup to have this kind of um, team makeup, at least for now in terms of, oh, so all of us are similar makeup. We get each other. We don't have to ex- over explain why we do certain things just because of our uh, cultural kind of uh, upbringing. I think that's very refreshing and it's nice to be a part of. And, um, but yeah, that's amazing because I think that's the one of the main things that you brought up in our pre-talks. Like, oh yeah, we're an AAPI team. And I thought that was really unique and also refreshing. Oh yeah, definitely, Kyle. And, you know, for a lot of us, we've experienced being the only person in the room or at the table. And kudos to all those people, you know, Kyle, for you too, if you did experience that and you still came up and stepped up to the plate and represented the API community, you deserve a big pat on the back. I think it's incredibly, incredibly difficult to be the only person of your background. And at times it could be intimidating and sometimes you become the target as well, unfortunately. I know right now in in my unit, in, in the, we're talking about the military side, there are very few AAPIs. We're, the, we're literally the minority of the minorities. So there's very few. Oftentimes when I get into meetings, I'm, on, I'm the only Asian American officer in that setting. And so... You, you can, I can sort of sense it. I can already sense their sort of perceptions, their expectations based on what they've seen in the media. I do feel it. It's still there. Still a lot of uh, mis- misconceptions of the AAPI community. Yeah, and more reason for us to keep telling our stories in any platform that we have the opportunity to be on so that, you know, as we uh, share more of our stories, of our experience, then people will understand us more and also allow for other AAPI to hear that, oh, there's a lot of us out there doing things, doing great things, and um, there's nothing to be afraid of, ashamed of, or whatever it may be. You can just be yourself, do the best you could, 
and you got other people that are like you that are doing the same thing and you guys are working towards the same thing which is you know be the best version of yourself and that's all that matters and it's been such a joy to be able to speak with you learn from you and learn more about hug match and all that so for the listeners if they want to know more about hug match follow the journey you know be part of it or no just want to know more about you know the experience of building interactive toys for children and such where can they find hug match and what should they uh, uh follow and such absolutely uh, please visit our website at hugmatch.net um, just like how you hear it that's how you spell it and uh, on our instagram which is at hugmatch so you can find us there please follow us and just uh, keep in touch we do answer our messages and we would love to always interact with the public and yeah once again Kyle thanks this was great and uh, looking forward to seeing you know your platform grow as well in tandem again thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your story and sh- telling up more us telling us more about hug match and uh, thank you to the listener for listening to this episode. Uh, if you like this episode, you could check out more of the other episode on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms as well. And follow us on Instagram at What Kind of Asian Pod. And again, thank you so much for your support. Thank you for caring about AAPI stories. And uh, tune in next time for another episode where we have conversations about being Asian. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to like, comment, and share the podcast on your social media and rate us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You can find us by just searching What Kind of Asian Are You podcast on Google and at What Kind of Asian Pod on Instagram. For the YouTube listeners, make sure to subscribe, like, comment, and ring the notification bell. Last but not least, buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash what kind of Asian. Thank you again and make sure to tune in next time for another awesome episode.